invite you to uh, open your Bible uh, this evening to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. So we're making our way through the uh, Psalms. Tonight we come to a Psalm that's uh, a little different. It's going to sound a little, a little different as the psalmist uh, raises an uh, objection and maybe even an accusation uh, against the Lord. And, um, and, and yet it's, uh, it, it's an experience that God's people commonly have, a, a crisis of faith where what we had expected of God doesn't seem to be what God is doing. And so Psalm 44, let's give our attention uh, to God's word. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. And have not, not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. And have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle. Demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. The derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not and have not been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Well, God in heaven, now as we come to your word, we ask that your spirit would open our ears again and our hearts to receive it. Uh, and, the, and Lord, I pray that tonight you would lead us into a deeper understanding of your ways and your salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, use this word to arm us in our day of trial uh, as we, uh, Lord, trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
The title of my message tonight is, When Christianity Doesn't Work. Psalm 44 is a prayer that addresses one of the most challenging experiences of faith. Uh, What do you do when the faith doesn't work? What do you do when Christianity doesn't work? What do you do do when uh, the expectations that you had uh, of God, the things that you believed about God, proved to be false. Mike Horton writes, so often when people come to, come to Christ, they are promised victory in Jesus. Smiling, happy people tell about how once they were unhappy and now they are filled with buoyant exultation. Broken marriages are fixed. Wayward children are returned to the straight and narrow path. And depression is banished to the old life. But what happens when Christianity doesn't work. I, I read an article this past week by a young woman named Jessie Goldham, Golem, uh, and in the article she explained uh, why she was no longer a Christian. And she begins the article by saying, if you had told me uh, five years ago that I would lose my faith, I wouldn't have believed you. I was a hardcore Christian. So what happened? Well, her story was that she moved away to a strange city, and she uh, there had a difficult time making friends. She experienced deep loneliness, unlike anything she'd ever experienced before, and then she was uh, tragically sexually assaulted, and God never showed up. She writes this, the question, where was God, kept on asking itself to me as I tried to process what had happened. God was supposed to love me and protect me and keep me from harm. Of all the times in my life that I needed God, God was not there. This is where I stopped believing in God. I would rather think that God simply does not exist than think that God abandoned me. Psalm 44 addresses exactly that crisis of faith. What do we do when what we had believed uh, about God, what we thought he had promised to do, uh, he doesn't do? The psalmist begins by recounting uh, the faith. We're not sure the, the specific author or the, uh, the title at the beginning of the psalm says, uh, the, uh, to the choir master, master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. So this is written in the days of, uh, of God's people, in God's land, in Israel, um, and uh, don't, not sure who's the king, but it's a day, as you know, in Israel where um, God is reigning through his kings, and, and the, uh, the enemies of, of Israel are, are all around, and there's constant conflict and battle between God's people and, uh, and the enemies around them. And the writer begins by recounting the faith that they had in God. Oh God, verse 1, we have heard with our ears what our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. Uh, These are people who've grown up in the community of faith. They've heard the the stories of God's great work in the past, and they've, they've heard it from their parents. Our fathers have told us. That's a snapshot of covenant faithfulness. This is how it's supposed to work. Uh, Parents are supposed to teach their children the ways of the Lord, the deeds of God in in the days of old. Psalm 78 
tells us this, that God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. That's God's purpose. That's the plan. It's his primary way of expanding the kingdom. And that's what happens, has happened here. These, these boys and girls grew up hearing from their parents who God was, what he was like, uh, what he had promised, and what he had done. And they would know the Bible stories about how God made the world by speaking. Uh, they would know about the great flood where God uh, judged the world because of its wickedness, but rescued uh, Noah and his family through the ark. They would know the stories about Abraham and, and God calling Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and how God rescued his people with a mighty arm and then through Joshua brought them into the land and gave them the land. These are all the, the stories that they'd heard. And, and, and through these stories, they learned this lesson that God does these things by his own power and for his own glory. So verse 3, not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. That was the core lesson of faith. The, the, maybe you could say the essence that God exercises his power on behalf of his people for the glory of his name. That's the faith that they had been told. That's the faith they had believed and it was the faith that they had experienced in, in uh, themselves, in their own life. So verses 5 and following. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. So the faith of the fathers has become the faith of the children. And they are seeing the same principle being uh, carried out. That God is exercising his power on behalf of his people for his glory. If, if the psalm ended there, this would be a wonderful psalm. This would be a psalm that this would preach. Uh, you, you could explain uh, the covenant faithfulness and how the faith of the fathers becomes the faith of the children. And how, uh, how God is, is faithful to do as he did in the days of old, so he does, um, so he does today. And that would all be true. But it's not where the psalm ends. Verse 9 introduces this ominous word, but, yet, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. What was happening in the days of old and what had happened even in their own experience is not happening any longer. In their moment of need, their current moment of need, God has seemingly rejected them and disgraced them. And so the writer first talks about the faith they had believed, and now he speaks of the failure of God. Verses 9 and 12 are the cry of someone who feels betrayed. Notice that the writer clearly attributes their current calamities to God. Israel's defeat on the battlefield was not accidental. The dead men... In that field and the grieving wives and, and Israelite children left behind are directly due to the 
active hand of God. Verse 10, you made us turn back from the foe. 11, you made us like sheep for the slaughter. 12, you sold your people for a trifle. They attribute it to God. And there's a bit of bitterness in verse 12. You sold your people for a trifle. You've betrayed and, and, and rejected us and, and for a pittance. You, you sold us into the hands of our enemies and, and you didn't even give us the, 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 the honor of asking for a high price. You got nothing out of the deal. And so there's this, this, this devastating sense of, of, of betrayal and, and verse 13 and following uh, ex- expresses the writer expresses the, sh- the the overwhelming shame of the experience. He uses words like taunt and derision and scorn and laughing stock in a, in a culture of honor, which would be the culture of the Old Testament, where uh, disgrace is worse than death. This is. This is the worst thing that could happen to them. They are being shamed. The, their, their enemies are saying, your God doesn't want you. Your God is sick of you. He's had enough of you. You're, he didn't get anything out of the deal. He gave you away for nothing and allowed the gods of, of, of Baal and, and, uh, and the, the pagan gods around to have their way with you. The world howls and jeers. Verse 15, all day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. And so that's their experience. And the problem is it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. You see, Israel had a category for suffering at the hand of God. They they had a category for that. It was called covenant discipline. They recognize that loving fathers discipline their children and that in the covenant that God made with Moses, there are clear uh, instructions there. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. And if you turn aside from me, if you turn to other gods and worship them, then there will be consequences, that there there will be covenant um, curses that come upon you. God will punish you. But you see, that makes sense, that, that, that there's moral order in that world. A child who's being punished uh, because they've done something uh, wrong is not wrestling with, with moral order. In a sense, they're, they're accepting there's a moral order. You do the crime, you do the time. Uh, but that's, that's not what's going on here. You see, usually that's the case. Israel could usually say when, when they were experiencing defeat on the battlefield, they could usually stop and look around and say, okay, we're, are we missing something? Oh, yes. Uh, we're we're uh, bombing down to the altars to foreign gods on the high places. That, that probably needs to stop. God said something about that. Daniel is an example of this in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel in Babylonian captivity, verses 9, verse 13. Um, as is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us because we've sinned against you. So there's a, there's a category for this suffering. But that category doesn't work here. The writer of Psalm 44 is not able to connect the dots in that way. He says in verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. 
that the experience that they're going through doesn't fit in the category of covenant discipline. Now, he's, he's not claiming sinless perfection. We can't say, oh, come on now, right? Like Job's friends. Surely you must have done something wrong. This is the same category Job's friends have. Job is a man who, who trusts the Lord, who obeys the Lord, who's, who lives a life that is pleasing to the Lord, and yet the Lord um, allows Job's life to be decimated with sorrow. And the friends come, and, and you see, they've, they've got this moral order in place, and they say, Job, surely you must have sinned somewhere. Just confess it. But Job says, I haven't sinned. How do you make sense of this suffering when, when you can't point to something you've done? How many people don't, when they go through a time of, of trial, say, God, just show me what I did wrong. Just show me what I'm supposed to learn. I'll, I'll happily learn it. I'll happily confess it. One of the most disorienting parts of experience like this is it just it doesn't seem to fit what we had thought about God and what we thought about how God works and, and, and how the moral universe works. And the, the writer here, is, he's just... He's making clear that this does not fit. We have not forgotten you. And if we had, he says, right, would not the Lord know this? Would not the Lord discover this? Verse 20 and following, 2021. Doesn't he know the secrets of the men's hearts? So, so Lord, if, if we're missing something, then, then reveal it to us. But, but Lord, you know, you know, Lord, we have not turned our backs. This, again, not claiming innocence, uh, perfection, but covenant faithfulness. We've been faithful to the covenant, but you, you have broken us. You have covered us with the shadow of death. I, I just hope you sense the, the frustration, the crisis, the disorientation, the despair. Again, it's very similar to what Job had experienced, and it's similar to what people experience still today. There are many of God's people who struggle with this discrepancy between what they had believed about God, what they thought God had promised. Jesse, right? God was supposed to protect me. God was supposed to be with me. And then these awful things happened, and he didn't protect me, and he wasn't with me. This is maybe one of the most uh, critical challenges to faith. I remember talking to a man in on the corner, corner street uh, in London um, who complained, uh, you know, I, I was talking about, his, about faith, about God. I don't believe any of that stuff. I was raised in the church and then God, uh, he, had, he had some disease had come where he had, he had mold on his skin and he showed me and, he, and it had destroyed his life. And, he, and, he, and he's just so full of bitterness. You tell me how I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. I got nothing. It doesn't work. And we got to be careful about just chiding people for their lack of faith when devastating, devastating things happen. And God doesn't seem to care. And that's what's going on here. You see, they, the writer here, he, 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 he believed in God, that, that the, the covenant was, meant blessings if you obey and curses if you disobey. Those were the rules. But what if God doesn't keep the rules? What if God breaks the rules? Then what? It's an important question. It's an important point. Uh, 
Dale Ralph Davis makes uh, the great point that this psalm and the crisis of faith we find here has great benefit if we're willing to learn from it. That, that um, don't let your first experience of this crisis of faith happen to you um, right out there in the world somewhere where you were expecting certain things and, and, and God didn't answer your prayer and you're wondering if it, if it works at all. And, and your faith is wobbly. People lose their faith over these, this crisis every day. You see, the benefit of having the scripture is that when you come to that crisis and when it doesn't seem to work, you know there's a psalm that deals with that. And that you're not the first person to be down that road and, and, and to have that experience. And the questions that you're asking have been asked before. And in Psalm 44, you both get a, a, a wonderful description and, and uh, illustration of what you're experiencing. But also, there's, there's, there's hope here in Psalm 44, hope that we can hold on to. The writer has, has confessed his faith, and yet he's, he's struggled with God's failure. But he moves into the future uh, with two things in this psalm that I think point to uh, a, a deeper understanding and a conviction. Verse 22 um, seems to be a, a coming, things, something's coming to his mind and to, and to the light a bit. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, Kidner, uh, in his commentary, says this, that the crux is in verse 22 with this phrase, for thy sake. It implies the revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. The price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. If, if this is so, suffering may be a sign of fellowship with him, not of alienation. The writer seems to recognize that the reason the suffering is happening, at least from the world's perspective, is because the world hates God. And because the world hates God, the world hates God's people. And that they are suffering for God's sake. They're suffering specifically bearing God's name. And so even though it doesn't, it, it, it's hard to reconcile this experience with the covenant, it, 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 it's, it's not meaningless and, it, and, and it, it does have something to do with their relationship with God. That there's a fellowship in this suffering, not necessarily alienation. Either way, it's, it's clear that the writer hasn't given up on God. He continues to cry out to God. You might say, right, if, if why doesn't he just um, make his charge and then say, I'm done. Many people do. And they say, I'm, I'm, I'm through praying. Not going to ask anymore. Why doesn't he do this? Well, for several reasons. One, because where else are you going to go? Right? We, we believe there's one God. And the man on the street corner who had his fist in God's face believed, no matter what his claims were concerning atheism, uh, his, his, his anger clearly reveals uh, that he knows and believes there's a God. The writer continues to go to God because there's no other place to go, but he continues to go to God because he, there's something he can appeal to. Uh, in, in verses 23, awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. 
Do not reject us forever. It sounds a little bit like a story we have in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus and his disciples are making their way in a boat across the sea and a, and a great storm comes up and the, the, the water's crashing over into the boat and, uh, and Jesus, uh, the disciples uh, go to Jesus and you remember uh, Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat and what was, what was there a charge? Uh, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care that we are about to drown? Don't you care? Don't you love us? You see, the, the appeal of the disciples is to the affection, the care of the Savior, the Lord. And the, the appeal here, you see, is the same. Rise up and come to our help, verse 26. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You see, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the complete bewildering uh, pain of the events, there is this conviction that God remains a God of steadfast love. The writer does not know how to reconcile that truth with his experience. But he is also unwilling to relinquish that truth because it is the essence of God's character. He has revealed himself as that. A God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And this is, you see, what he clings to. This is where he goes. It's, 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 it's the same in Lamentations 3 where I remember my bitterness and my gall. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It can't cease. It is by definition unfailing. God is a God of hesed, and he can't unhesed himself. That's from Dale Ralph Davis. He can't unhesed himself. His, his love is love with crazy glue all over it. And once he has set his love uh, on someone, it, it, it will never break free. He'll never stop in his love. And so, you see, that's something to hold to and to appeal to. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis recounts a story told by Lloyd Douglas, the author of the book The Robe and others. But uh, Douglas was a college student living on um, an apartment complex near campus. He lived in the upstairs, and there was an old uh, elderly man, a retired music teacher, who lived on the main floor. <clears throat> and Douglas and this, uh, this elderly man struck up a friendship and a little routine that they would go through each morning. Now, Douglas would come down the stairs on his way to class, and he would, he would uh, stick his head in the door of the old man's apartment, and uh, he would ask every morning, uh, so what's the good news? And the old man would, would pick up his tuning fork and he would uh, strike it against his wheelchair and he would say every morning, that, my friend, is middle C. That's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It'll be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs is flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But that is middle C. That's the good news. You see, friends, in, in the things that we don't understand and in the, the, the confusion and the, and the pain of trials that don't make sense, there's a something that doesn't change. 
a something that will always be true. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And we have that truth, friends, sealed for us in the blood of Jesus Christ. That we can read this and know this, read it through the lens of New Testament revelation. Uh, we, can, we can know this as we, as we realize Jesus knew Psalm 44. He knew it not just because he had undoubtedly read it and memorized it. He knew it because he experienced Psalm 44 in the ultimate sense. Jesus was the ultimate covenant keeper. He could, he could say like no one had ever said, we have not departed from your ways. He has done the will of God. And yet he experienced the ultimate desolation. And it produced a crisis of sorts because on that cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He isn't just repeating lines. He's not just saying something because it's what he's supposed to say. The, the sense of abandonment, the sense of judgment and condemnation, condemnation from his father so overwhelms him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so no matter how deep your sense of, of, of betrayal or forsakenness, it will not be as deep as that of Christ. And Jesus knows the experience. But you see, his crisis changes everything. Because his crisis means that whatever trials and, that we might face, no matter how severe, no, no matter how breathtakingly painful, no matter how disorienting or bewildering, or inscrutable they might be, there remains a middle sea. The cross means that steadfast love of the Lord will never fail. It will never err. That's the confidence with which Paul, for instance, writes in Romans chapter 8. Who, will, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he, and he brings forth some options. Painful options. So shall tribulations separate us from the love of Christ? How about distress or persecution or famine? Do you know what it's like to be so hungry? Your body's screaming for something to eat and there's nothing to eat. Can that, could that separate you from the love of Christ? How about nakedness or danger or sword? What about if someone actually says, uh, you uh, deny Christ or, or it's death. Maybe not to you, maybe to a loved one. These are real experiences that God's people experience. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, thinks of Psalm 44. Because he says in the very next verse, as it is written, Psalm 44, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul acknowledges Psalm 44. He acknowledges these, these sorts of experiences and, and the crisis that might bring. But he places it here in the middle of this wonderful uh, ode to the love of Jesus Christ because you see the cross proves that love cannot fail and suffering is what the psalmist sensed it might be. It's a sign of fellowship with Christ. It's not alienation. It's a battle scar, but it's not punishment. That we will reign with him, Paul can say in chapter 8, we will reign with him if we have suffered with him. 
It's a sign of fellowship, so much so that Paul prays, I want to know the fellowship of sharing the suffering of Christ. You see, it, it means that even though the experience is, 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 is painful and, and disorienting in certain ways, it means that in the light of the cross, God is not abandoning you. The disciples praise God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name, you, that we suffer because we bear the name of Christ. And, and what might feel like defeat actually is triumph. Because in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why not? Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It just never ceases. And friends, that's, that's the comfort that we can have, even though we don't have the answers. We don't know why things happen. But we know this is true, that the, the gospel happened and the steadfast love of the Lord that brought our Lord Jesus to a cross is the love that will bring his people home. Horton writes this, Christianity is true, not because it works for some people, but because nearly 2,000 years ago, outside of the city of Jerusalem, the Son of God was crucified for our sins and raised to life for our justification, all because of the eternal steadfast love of the Lord. This historical event may not fix marriages or relationships or our messed up lives the way that we would like and in the timing we would like, but it does save us from the wrath of God, which is to come. And it assures us of the unwavering, irrevocable, sustaining love of God in the present and forever. Friends, uh, some of you might be in the trial right now. All of us will at some time experience a, a devastating loss or a devastating diagnosis, a phone call that you never wanted to receive, or just the, maybe the, the ongoing um, trial or difficulty or pain in your life that just slowly ebbs away your faith. But you'll, 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 you'll come to the point where you're asking the questions. Know that you'll come to the point where you're asking questions. But then know where to go. We go to a cross. We go to a son of God who hung there bearing our sin because he loved us. A son who hung there because it was the father's good pleasure to place him there because he loved us. And that love will never cease. And so <clears throat> when you don't have the answers, and you often will not have the answers, you have the truth. You have a conviction. Now, this love will never fail. And it will never let you go. Amen. <clears throat> oh God in heaven, I pray for your people, your sheep. Lord, you know what lies ahead, what you've ordained. Lord, you know what some of us are experiencing right now. Or maybe, Lord, what some of us have experienced in the past and we still haven't made sense of it. We don't know how to reconcile it with what we believed about you. But Lord, I pray that the, the deep truth of your infinite steadfast love for us would be sufficient, if not to answer our questions, Lord, then to, to give us calm and peace 
uh, with, with what we, we, we haven't been told, knowing that, the, the, that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. You don't owe us explanations, not when you've given us your son. And Father, I pray that knowing Jesus and the love that brought him to that cross and the love that, that pours down from the throne of grace in heaven, Lord, I pray that that would be sufficient today for us to have joy and hope and peace and faith, and that would be sufficient today for us to worship. For Lord God, you are worthy of our worship. And Lord, as we move into this week and the weeks and years to come, Father, keep this truth. Don't let the devil snatch this away from us. That you are a God who loves his people. That we are more loved than we can imagine. And that love will never cease. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.